Okay, if you'd like to uh, turn with me to Second Timothy, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Okay, let's just bow our hearts as we uh, just come to this portion of text this morning, shall we? Father, once again, we just ask for your spirit to illuminate this text to us. Lord, give us understanding um, that we may grow by the things that we read and hear. Um, Father, please help us to be encouraged and challenged. Um, Lord, to leave here this morning, Lord, not as we came in, but Lord, wanting more of you in our lives. Lord, desiring and thirsting, hungry after righteousness. Um, Lord, help us to understand a little bit more of grace. Um, and Lord, of all that you've accomplished, Lord, so that we shouldn't have to strive. Um, so Father, we just give you this time. We pray you speak to us now through your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. So we didn't really get very far into the uh, the chapter. Uh, we managed the first verse uh, and only a few comments on that. Um, Second Timothy goes really just following straight on, obviously, um, uh, in terms of the the themes. Um, first Timothy, we saw the previous letter. Um, Paul's just encouraging Timothy. Um, Timothy clearly had got downcast at times. Yeah, and we all do in our Christian walk. There are times that we struggle. There are times that we feel like we can't go on anymore. We sometimes feel like we're the only ones going through it. Uh, Paul reminding Timothy that he's not alone. Um, these things are experienced by believers in every situation. Um, every pastor of every church has gone through the kind of feelings and emotions that Timothy uh, has exhibited and the things that Paul is trying to address. And in Second Timothy, again, um, this whole idea of loyalty really calling Timothy to remember his calling, remember the uh, the reason he's in this ministry in the first place. It wasn't because he chose to do it. It wasn't because one day Timothy woke up with a really great idea. Uh, it was because the Lord had called him. And then to Paul just reminding him of the, the need to stand firm. And we saw in that, that first chapter again, the emphasis um, on doctrine, it comes through time and time again. Talk a bit more about that as we go forward this morning. We're going to see Paul compare the ministry that Timothy has, the, typically the ministry of a pastor, to that of a soldier, first of all, and then that of somebody who's running a race, an athlete. Quite a fit, apt kind of um, illustration of a pastor, I think. Most pastors I know, I think we could use that. Um, and then we go on to that of a farmer and so on, and then we, we, we kind of conclude after that. But you know, we see these different examples that Paul gives, just trying to help Timothy, just to understand what he's been called to and the, the need to keep on keeping on. But really, it all centers around this first verse again, and we're just going to just do a few minutes here. Uh, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace. Now, there's a lovely, tender uh, comment there. Therefore, my son, uh, Paul says to Timothy, there was a real bond and affection between these two men. Timothy seemingly had come to the Lord because of Paul's witness and ministry. Uh, and clearly, Paul had taken Timothy under his wing, uh, and uh, they'd gone off on this missionary, second missionary journey together, leaving from Lystra and so on. And he says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And that's the only way we can be strong. Once again, I mentioned this book last week, Why Grace Changes Everything by Pastor Chuck Smith. And it really is a fantastic book. It just opens your eyes to the reality that God loves you, that God wants to bless you. And so often in our Christian life, in our Christian walk, we try and get to a place where we think we are deserving of the blessing. That if we do X, Y, and Z, then the Lord will bless us. You know, and we almost think, I guess at times as a fellowship, that if we do this right, and we do this right, and we do this right, well then the Lord will bless us. That's not what grace is. 
Grace is just God wanting to pour out his blessings upon us because he is good. You know, it's just like a father. Uh, you know, I've seen this a number of times with my children. We get to a, a birthday and they're wanting this, that, and the other for their presence. You know, but I want to go exceedingly beyond their expectation. I want to bless them in the way that they hadn't anticipated. That there's nothing more joyful than, than seeing the, the look of surprise on their eyes. Not when they get a present that they were wanting or hoping to get, but when they get something they didn't expect to get. There's something really wonderful and special about that. And that is what God does with us. God wants to bless us beyond anything we can imagine. But we've just got to realize that we have to step back. And and all this striving to to be better, to get it right, all those kind of things that so often consume our, our mind. You know, we've got to realize that the work has been done. Jesus has done the work. And yes, there is that old life and and we need to to put to death the things of the old life. And yes, we need to constantly sow to the Spirit. But really, it's as simple as that, that we just need to walk in the Spirit. If we walk in the Spirit, the blessings will come. And it doesn't take any effort just to walk. It's simply living each day knowing that Jesus loved us so much that he went to the cross for us. And he wants to bless us. He wants to pour out his blessings upon us so that we can then be a blessing to others. We were talking the other week about the Sea of Galilee, the way that it takes the water in from the Jordan and then it flows out and it's teeming with life. You know, the Dead Sea in contrast, it takes in, it takes in, it takes in, it never gives out and it's dead. You know, the Lord wants to bless you so that you can give out and bless others. And then the Lord will just keep blessing you more and more. Yeah, and we just need to come to that, that place of recognizing just how good and how wonderful Jesus really is. And Timothy here being encouraged, in a sense, the, to not worry about striving himself, not worry about um, all the effort and the work that he could put in to make his ministry successful. That, that, that's not it. It's be strong in the grace. It's almost, it really is that old adage, that let go and let God. That God will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Romans 5.17, we read this. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, speaking of course of Adam, much more they which receive abundance of grace, abundance, look at this, abundance of grace, and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, i.e. Jesus Christ. You know, we don't have to do anything to be subject to death. I mean, that's part of the natural order of things because of one man's offense. Death reigned, okay? And all individuals now is appointed to man wants to die, then the judgment. None of us have to go out and try and work out how we're going to die. In the same way, the righteousness, the grace, the blessings that come from Jesus are a gift that he gives us when we put our faith and trust in him. We don't have to figure out how it's going to happen. He's done it. All we have to do is to step back and receive. Again, much more they which receive abundance of grace. Often we are a real blockage to the Lord's blessings because we try and put it on a conditional basis. You know, we try and have that mindset of, well, I'm going to do this then, and I'm going to do this. And, and we make grace subject to our obedience or subject to our um, 
faithfulness and so on. It's not any of those things. It's his faithfulness. Much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. And notice we receive. It's a gift. Shall reign in life by one. That is Jesus. Romans 9 verse 30, it says, What should we say then? That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. And Paul here is speaking of, you know, the contrast in a sense with Jews and Gentiles, but saying, yeah, look, the Gentiles didn't even go looking for righteousness, but they've been given it. And of course, this is those that have put their faith and trust in Jesus. Because he says, which is of faith. And that's it. It's just faith. Just trusting that God is who he says he is, that God is good, that God really does want to bless us. And we're told in James 2.23 that Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. That's what he did, he just believed. You know, this is very much like the Mary and the Martha thing. And this is an analogy that I've gone back to so many times. And I think it's so applicable that Martha was cumbered by such a load of care. She was so concerned, you know, Jesus had come to the house and then she was serving the meal and she wanted to get things right and do things properly. And, you know, that's all well and good. And there's a place for that. But what was Mary doing? She was just sitting at Jesus' feet. You know, and that's not to say that we should become lazy and not do things and so on, but at the same time, it's getting our priorities right. She was doing the most important thing, which was just sitting at Jesus' feet and just worshipping him. You know, and all the work and everything else. You know, it's like the church at Ephesus that we read about in Revelation chapter 2. You know, it was a church that were commended for holding fast the doctrine, and yet... They're rebuked because they've lost their first love. You know, and how sad it is when, you know, we get everything right apart from the relationship, which is the most important part. You know, Jesus has to be number one. He wants us to, to look to him. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. You know, all the other things come once that relationship is right. Seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things shall be added, we're told. Paul carries on to Timothy and says, And the things that thou hast heard of me, among many witnesses, so Paul's saying, look, you know, this isn't something that was said in secret. These things I've shared, you know, you've heard me say many times, many people have heard this. It is the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. Now, there's actually a lot in this verse, if we just look at this. Because Paul is saying that, Timothy didn't have his own special gospel to go and proclaim. Because all he was doing was proclaiming the things that Paul had shared with everybody. You know, there isn't a unique gospel that, that goes out from one place and a different gospel that goes from another. No, it's the same gospel. Paul had shared these things with many witnesses. And now Paul is urging Timothy, pass on the things that you've heard. But remember to pass it on, not just to anybody, but to faithful men. Who notice who shall be able to teach others also. How important it is that we teach subsequent generations of the things of God, of the things of the Word of God, of the importance of the Word of God. You know, as sons of God, you too must be concerned about your Father's business, just as Jesus 
came to be concerned about his father's business. And Jesus came to do the will of his father. And we here have this mandate to pass on the things that we've heard to others. And again, it's, it's not just committing it to faithful men in terms of you know, people that are of good repute and so on, but people that won't distort it, that won't change it, that won't try and build on it or make it something that it wasn't, that will simply pass on the message, the, the gospel as it is, the simplicity of the gospel, that it is all about Jesus Christ, that salvation is through Jesus Christ alone, that sanctification is through Jesus Christ alone. I just want to share with you, this account, I heard this from Joe Foch many years ago at a conference we were at. Uh, and he was speaking about this man, Edward Kimball. Um, Edward Kimball was nobody particularly special. He was a Sunday school teacher, uh, no man of great you know, renown or anything like that at the time. But he had a burden for one of his Sunday school students. Uh, and he really wanted this uh, young individual to come to know Jesus as Lord and Saviour. And so one day he decided to go and see this young lad at the store where he worked. He happened to work at a a shoe store. And there in the shoe store, he led him to Jesus Christ. Uh, That lad was a man that we know as Dwight L. Moody. Just the faithfulness of of Edward Kimball, just going and sharing the gospel, just being prompted of the Lord, just, just had that burden to see this man come to Jesus Christ. Well, Dwight L. Moody, as I'm sure many of you are aware, went on to become an evangelist whose ministry really did rock two continents. It was while he was preaching in the British Isles that Moody spoke in a small chapel that happened to be pastored at the time by Frederick Brotherton Meyer, F.B. Meyer. I'm sure some of you again are familiar with him. And in his sermon, Moody had told this emotionally charged story of a Sunday school teacher, again, who he knew personally, that went to every student in his class and won them to Christ. And that message so changed Pastor Meyer's entire ministry, inspired him to become an evangelist also. Over the years, Meyer came to America, went to America several times to preach, and uh, once in a place, uh, Northfield in Massachusetts, a confused young preacher was sitting in the back row and he heard Maya say, if you're not willing to give everything to God, are you willing to be made willing? That young individual was a man by the name of J. Wilbur Chapman and he accepted the call of God on his life. Chapman then went on to become one of the most effective evangelists of his time. And a volunteer helped Chapman to set up uh, crusades and ministry opportunities. And any kind of this this particular one particular individual um, that was associated with Chapman that worked with him alongside him learned to preach simply by watching Chapman speaking and teaching. And that young man's name was Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday eventually took over Chapman's ministry. And again, became one of the most effective evangelists of the 20th century. And in the great crusades that were typically going on, particularly in America, but also in this country, um, Billy Sunday's preaching turned thousands to Christ. Well, in a 1924 Billy Sunday crusade uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina, a committee of Christians committed themselves to reaching that city for Christ. 
Um, they were so inspired by what Billy Sunday had said that this group said about praying. Uh, and they invited an individual by the name of Mordecai Ham to come and hold a series of evangelistic meetings. Um, there in 1932, those began. And one of the attendees of one of those meetings was a tall 16-year-old who sat in this crowd one evening just just amazed at the message, at the confidence, at the boldness of this white-haired preacher who seemed to be kind of shouting and waving directly at him. Um, and over a, a period of successive evenings as this crusade was running, this young man was going along and listening to Mordecai, Mordecai Ham preaching. And eventually, that young teenager gave his life to Jesus Christ. So that teenager was Billy Graham. And Billy Graham has doubtlessly communicated the gospel of Jesus Christ to more people than anyone else in the history of the world. But just remember how this sequence all began. A nobody, effectively, by the name of Kimball, concerned for one of his students, visited him at his shoe store. In doing that, Kimball changed the world. Millions upon millions have been affected by that decision to go to that shoe store that morning. And millions more will no doubt continue to feel the impact as lives have been changed by each of these individuals and the ministries that the Lord raised up for them. You know, Paul tells Timothy to commit these things to faithful men, to pass on the things you've learned. You know, what are we doing? Are we really truly doing that? We need to be sowing into that next generation. And then we get this analogy that Paul uses. It says, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. I think Paul, no doubt at this point, chained, quite possibly chained to a soldier, looking around and looking at this soldier, looking at the battle dress, and of course being very familiar with the whole might of the Roman Empire. I'm sure some of you have studied and read things about the the incredible strength that the Roman Empire had at its heyday. Mita recently did a project at school uh, about uh, Rome and the Roman Empire, and we made her a shield and a sword and all sorts of things. And, you know, just talking about the way that the, the army moved forward. And, you know, it, it wasn't uncommon for Rome to go up against, say, eight, ten thousand or more of the enemy with just 2,000 of their own troops. They learned the art of warfare. They learned that actually the long swords weren't particularly helpful. The long swords, if they were crashing against their neck or whatever, because they had the chainmail, they had protection on their neck, they didn't, generally didn't do a lot of damage. You know, and even if the sword went through kind of onto the arm, it would only go as far as the bone and typically stop. I mean, only, but this is, you know, they realized that it wasn't going to be potentially life-threatening, that they realized that short swords were far more effective. And so they would get close to the enemy and they would stab them. Typically, um, they understood the weaknesses of their uh, opponents' uh, armor and so on. Uh, but they understood the battle. And there was very few forces that were like the Roman soldiers when they went. I'm sure you've seen how they had their shields and they put them over the top of them and down the sides of them. And there was just this incredible, almost human tank moving forward. But Paul doesn't suggest that being a soldier was easy. He knew it was difficult, and yet at the same time, there was a discipline involved in that. And he says to Timothy, endure hardness. 
It's a reality. As Christians, we will face difficult challenges. We've got to endure those things. We're told, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And he adds this, he says, No man that wars entangles himself with the affairs of this life. And he's kind of almost mixing his metaphors here, but he says that it may please him who has chosen him to be a soldier. He's saying, you know, Jesus has called you, has chosen you to be in his army. You can't get entangled with the things of the enemy, the things of this world. There's no point trying to fight the things of this world on one hand and then embracing them on the other. You know, we need to have it very clear in our own minds that we're to be separate from this world. Now, once again, being separate from this world isn't something that we just make a decision and, you know, we're going to be resilient and make a resolution or whatever. It's all about the grace of God again. You can only be separate from this world by the grace of God. By remembering that Christ has put in you his Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit will fill you with all the fruit of the Spirit. It will overflow in your life if you allow it. You know, if you seek him again with a, with a whole heart. And, and, and the Lord will give you the strength to turn away from the things of this world. You know, people like Joseph, who we read of in scripture, who fled when temptation came knocking on his door. You know, Joseph didn't stop to consider or to, to weigh up you know, the possibilities and whether other people would find out and whether it would really be a problem. He just fled. He was relying, he fully understood himself on God's grace and God's strength because he wanted to please God. God was so important to him. If you remember his response to Mrs. Potivar, it was not about, you know, well, I don't feel I should. Or, you know, it was about his God. He knew that he couldn't offend his God. God was more important to him than anything else. In the same way, you know, Paul says here that we're not to get entangled with anything of this world. Because we should be wanting to please the one who's enlisted us, who's chosen us. To be a soldier. And again, to, to be chosen as a soldier for Rome was a privilege. They were treated very well. You know, soldiers had a, a rank, they had a pedigree. And it was tough, it was tough training. You know, we, we heard no doubt many of us stories of, you know, the training of these groups and, you know, elite forces and things through the centuries and how hard that training is and how many people fall out on, on the, the, the road to becoming a, a professional soldier. Well, we have been chosen. The Lord has given us that, that vote of confidence. We've passed that test as far as God is concerned. We've been enlisted in his army. We should understand that that's a huge privilege that God has called each one of us. And again, it's not because of our ability. It's because of what he knows he can do through us. But he recognizes with each one of us that he can work in our lives, that there's a humility there. There's a willingness to surrender. If there was that, that arrogance and that belief that we had it all together, God wouldn't use us and couldn't use us. But God has chosen us. I'm 
those that are involved in special operations in the military today. I have a, a close friend back in Deal um, who has a very senior position in the military. You know, they can't afford to carry any excess baggage. You know, that they're taught to train with the huge weights on their back and all the things that they need. They don't want to take anything they really don't need. You know, they need to be deadly serious about what they're about because they know their lives, the lives of those that are under their command, all depend upon it. In the, it needs to be really restated again that the Christian life is not a playground, it's a battleground. You know, it, it's, and it is a battle. You know, all the time we're here, we are in training. You know, we, we, from the, from the point of the cross, we could have gone home. Every believer now could immediately go and be with Jesus in heaven. The price has been paid. So why have we been left? Why is it that the Lord tarries? Why is it he doesn't take all the believers home straight away? The moment you become a Christian, you're gone. Well, the reason is we're left so that we learn to become overcomers. So that we learn this art of warfare. So that we are equipped and trained for things that are ahead that we haven't yet fully understood. Things that will come to pass in the millennial kingdom of Christ and then off into eternity. Things that we've not yet understood. And we're told that if a man also strives for masteries, yet is, is he not crowned except he strives lawfully. You know, he's talking now about an athlete and saying, yeah, there's rules. You know, when you're, you're in a race, you, you can't just start when you want to start. There has to be that, that starter's gun or whatever that, Starts the race. There's boundaries as to where you can and can't run. You know, you can't just do what you want and expect to win a prize. In the same way as it is for us as believers. You know, the Lord has given us very clear boundaries. And we need to stay within those boundaries because those boundaries are good for us. Again, you don't get the crown unless you keep to the rules. Again, strife here refers to contending in the game, being committed to winning and winning by the rules. And Paul frequently uses these kind of allusions from, no doubt, his familiarity with the Olympic and the Isthmian games at that time. It's been said that the only exercise some Christians get is jumping to conclusions, running down their friends, sidestepping responsibility, I'm pushing their luck. But, uh, you know, sadly a lot of Christians don't take the Christian life seriously. The next analogy Paul gives is this one. The husbandman that labors must be first partaker of the fruits. A farmer has to work. You know, if you leave the field to itself, it will produce mostly weeds. There has to be that labor involved. In all of these examples, Paul is reminding Timothy that it is hard work that we've been called to. Oh, and the blessings are unbelievable. The pension plan is out of this world, literally. You know, our eternity is so full of blessing for the things we've done here and now in our service to the king. But again, Paul reminding Timothy that it is a challenge and there will be times that we will struggle and these are those times we need to refer to these kind of scriptures to remind ourselves. But this example here, the husband and the man, again, uh, the laborers must first uh, must be first partaker of the fruits. 
I think Solomon maybe had this in mind when he wrote about uh, the field of the sluggard in Proverbs 24. He goes on, Consider what I say, and the Lord give the understanding in all things. He says, Remember that Jesus Christ, the seed of David, was raised from the dead according to my gospel. It's always good to just re-get our focus here. Consider what I'm saying. Think about what I'm saying. The Lord help you understand these things. Again, remember that Jesus Christ, the seed of David, was raised from the dead according to my gospel. This gospel that had been committed to Paul to teach. And he says, Wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. He says, I might be bound, I might be in prison, but the word of God is not bound. And you've got this responsibility to pass on the things you've heard, to teach other people, to teach faithful men, that they then pass those things on. And yes, it's going to be a struggle, but be like a soldier. Be like an athlete running a race. Be like a farmer that's laboring to sow the seals so that you produce that crop. He says, therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sake. I genuinely think Paul here is making reference to the Jews once again. He's already, back in Romans, referred to his desire to see his own countrymen saved. And why was Paul in chains in the first place? Well, it was largely because of the antagonistic response he'd had from the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, because he was preaching this gospel about a Jewish Messiah. He says, therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sake that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul, partly referencing scripture here, knowing that there would come a time that Israel would put their faith and trust in him. There will come a time that the eyes of Israel will be opened. They will look upon him whom they've pierced, they will mourn. But we're told in Romans Chapter 11, and that will be when the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. But Paul's saying, yeah, I'm willing to endure all this. I'm willing to be in prison. You know, I've preached the Jews. I've upset them. They put me in prison. If you remember the whole situation after his third missionary journey, he goes to Jerusalem. He's taken um, or or rescued from the mob so they don't kill him, but eventually taken down to Caesarea uh, and ends up staying there um, for a long period of time and eventually gets on this boat off to Rome uh, because of the accusations of the Jews against him. He says, I'm willing to endure all of this for the elect's sake that they also may obtain salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And he says, it is a faithful saying for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. The number of faithful sayings that Paul makes um, in First Timothy one fifteen, and then in four verse nine, also in Titus three verse eight. Um, but this is one again that he says it's a faithful saying, something we can trust, we can depend on. You know, it is faith in Jesus Christ that gives victory. Okay, Jesus died. Paul, knowing that he's about to die, and I believe this is really the reference to this, this or the the, the, the reason for this verse. You know, he's thinking about his own suffering, why he's in chains in the first place, knowing that he's facing the death penalty now. He's saying, you know, but one thing I'm sure of, it's a faithful saying, I'm not, I don't doubt this for a moment, that if we die with him, we're going to live with him. If, if I die for being a Christian, then I'm not losing anything because I have that promise of the resurrection. And he says also, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. But he says, if we deny him, he also would deny us. A number of scriptures make reference to denying Jesus. 
and the penalty that goes with that. It's interesting that this first part of the verse here, 2 Timothy 2.12, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. Some scholars, and interestingly, J. Vernon McGee, who uh, both Adrian and I have a great lot of uh, respect for, um, he believed that this implied that not all believers will have the opportunity of reigning with Christ. It doesn't affect our salvation, no question about that whatsoever. But it really goes back to that 1 Corinthians Three passages of scripture we looked at the other week. You know, that there's those different types of materials, gold, silver, and precious stones that speak of our works. They'll be tried by fire. And then the wood, hay, and straw that get burnt up. And everybody gets saved. It's all about that award ceremony when we get to heaven. But some are saved, yet so is by fire. In other words, you're there, but by God's grace alone. In a sense, of course, we're all only there by God's grace. But we are told, we're encouraged, we're commanded to let our faith be seen by our actions, by our works. That's what the book of James really hammers on. And the suggestion is that if you're not willing to suffer, if you're not willing to step out, lift your head above the parapet and be seen as an ambassador for Jesus Christ, you might lose that opportunity of reigning with him. This is again, I'm not saying this is, this is what I believe or doctrine. But I'm just simply saying there are some good, competent scholars that believe that. Again, it's on the basis of this verse, it would appear only those who have suffered for him get that privilege. <clears throat> but then he goes on and says, if we believe not, yet he abides faithful. He cannot deny himself. God is always faithful. God can never be unfaithful. The same way God can never not be good, God is always good. You know, in the same way that God can't deny himself, he also can't accept as true one who is false. And that's why Jesus gave such a scathing denunciation of the religious leaders of his day. Remember? Jesus, uh, we see it in Matthew, particularly Luke also and Mark, uh, really highlight the, the way that Jesus attacked the leadership, speaking of them as hypocrites, a brood of vipers, all these kind of things, because they were pretending to be something that they were not. You know, we need to be genuine too. And of course, we see each other on the surface. We don't, we don't see what's going on in our hearts, but the Lord does. And we're told very clearly in Scripture that God is not mocked. So again, Timothy says to, uh, so Paul says to Timothy, of these things, put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of hearers. Yeah, you know, there were people even at that time in the church in Ephesus that were kind of coming in and trying to twist what was being said, trying to change the gospel, disputing about the things that were being said. You know, Proverbs 13 verse 10 says, only by pride comes contention. And we see it so often, people that have got on their own personal agenda come in, try and usurp and reject authority and so on. It's happened so many times in the history of the Christian church. You know, the idea again of words to no profit here. Uh, it only undermines God's work. 
We should really major on the essentials, focus on the things that are really important, the, the doctrine that is clearly uh, accepted and passed down, and those things we should hold on to, as we've seen. Um, you know, many times it's been said we shouldn't major on the minors. You know, there are some differences. Uh, there are things that we can agree to differ on. You know, we, we can accept those things. But the, the fundamentals of our faith are non-negotiable. We've talked a lot about that already. And then Paul says, to study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It's um, interesting here, the word study uh, is to be diligent, to be zealous. Uh, not not study as in just sit down, put your head into a book kind of study, um, but be diligent to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed. It's interesting. Workman here, the word is uh, a treasure that the steward must guard and invest. Uh, the swords, sorry, the soldier's swords and the farmer's seed, in likewise, uh, were that kind of treasure. One of the greatest discoveries is that the Bible is this well organized, integrated whole. And that's why we need to study it in its entirety. That's why, as a fellowship, we study verse by verse. Because we don't want to miss anything. We want to understand the whole of the Word of God. And so often, the problems that occur, occur because people don't understand the whole Word of God. They will look at portions of Scripture, and they'll build doctrines or ideas based upon the little bits they're looking at. And they won't look at the whole. But when we take the Old Testament, we take the New Testament, when we see it as one revelation... Well, then we start to see these incredible patterns and gems that God has given us to reveal to us his plan, his purpose. And that's why we should, again, be zealous to show ourselves to prove unto God, workman that needs not be ashamed, and this is so important in this statement, rightly dividing the word of truth, knowing how these things all fit together. It's been suggested many times that we have these kind of clear divisions in scripture there's the first period of history sometimes referred to as innocence uh, the period back in the garden and that then leads on to the period of conscience genesis 3 7 which is then given over or given way to the period of human government uh, and so on, which is followed in turn by the promise in genesis after man has made a mess of things god steps in and this promise through Abraham that a Messiah, that a Savior would come. But that then leads also on to the period of the law. The law had to be given. The monarchy had to be established and so on. You know, and that really takes us all the way up to John the Baptist. And then we're in this period now, typically referred to this kind of time, or the dispensation of grace, the church age, uh, which really began um, properly in, in Acts Chapter 2, verse 1, with the, the day of Pentecost, and then finally the millennial kingdom, the millennial reign of Christ. So understanding these things, understanding the importance of them, understanding the importance of the law, why the law had to be given. Galatians gives us so much instruction on that. And it's important that we understand the way that God has broken down history. The traditional view of these uh, things we've just looked at there, It's kind of laid out such. So again, that period of innocence and then conscience, human government leading up to Babel, um, and then God steps in, intervenes with Babel, destroying man's effort. Um, But then the promise, the law, 
the church age, and then finally uh, the millennial kingdom following the return of Jesus Christ. Now, that's the, the traditional view. A lot of um, Bible commentaries have something along those lines. Um, I quite like this. This is Chuck Misler's alternative view, um, where he's got innocence, conscience, human government, and then really putting the promise and the law together. Um, because then we have the church age, and then we've got that separate period of time, the tribulation which is such a significant portion of time. It's something that's seldom taught in churches. But it's that period of time where God does two things. One, he brings Israel to their knees to that place of repentance. So important. Because unless they cry out to him as their Messiah, Hosea says that he's not going to come back. But when they cry out, it will be in their affliction that he will hear them and he will return. In their time of desperation and need, And it's also that time when God will bring judgment upon this Christ-rejecting world. And of course, in that final period of time being the Millennial Kingdom. Now, both of them kind of fit, but sometimes we could skip over the tribulation and forget how important it is. And clearly, it's distinct from the church age. The church will not go through the the time of tribulation from Scripture. I'm absolutely convinced of that. Um, The church has to be removed before that time of judgment comes. There's some more notes in the slides. I'll let you uh, look at those online if you want to. But just to move on with the text. But then Paul goes on and says, But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. You know, people are going to say all sorts of things. You know, it's interesting, isn't it, with this political race thing that's going on at the moment as we're looking for the next prime minister. You know, how many reports, how many things seem to be going in the, into uh, the media? And then, you know, one day something said, and next day something else. And, you know, it's all trying to discredit individuals and so on. Um, you know, well, it's the same with scripture. People will always try and um, say things to take people away, to distract people from the truth of God's word. Paul says to Timothy, look, just, just ignore it. You know, shun those things, profane, vain babblings. They're going to increase to more ungodliness. Don't pursue them. Don't waste your time on those things. That kind of bibble babble can prove um, vapid unless applied uh, to the real world. You know, Chuck Mises said this, a mild inoculation can serve to make you immune to the real thing. It says, and their word will eat as do the canker of whom Emmanuel and Philetus, uh, it mentions these two individuals. We talked about this previously. Um, again, that canker, gangrene, typically it spreads and infects, uh, and false doctrine. We have seen so many times now, Paul has said, that it is so dangerous. It says, who concern the truth of earth, saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some. It's interesting, isn't it, how the resurrection is always that target, either subtly or overtly. But just as we have in our day, people who say that Jesus isn't going to come back physically. And there's a surprising number of people in the established church that will teach that. This group that I've had the pleasure of encouraging recently in Milton Keynes. You know, they've come from a church where there are individuals who do not believe Jesus will return physically. And they'll argue that actually everything was completed in 70 AD. And that Jesus returned at that point and now he's indwelling his church. You know, and, and that overthrows the faith of some. We need to be so careful of these things. Nevertheless, the foundation of God stands sure, or praise God. 
having this seal, the Lord knows them that are his, and let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. God is in complete control. We don't need to worry about those that would come up with their various vain theories and ideas. And then this verse. This was the verse that many years ago led me out of a traditional church to really seek after the Lord, to really get into Scripture, because I realized that I was in a place and the Word of God was not being taught. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and of earth. I was actually in a a church, and there was a lot of gold and silver around. But also of wood and earth, and some to honor, some to dishonor. And this is the verse that one morning the Lord really convicted me. If a man therefore will purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. You know, there's a lot of Christian denominations, establishments, groups, but a lot of what is done there is not for the glory of Jesus Christ. It's to promote their denomination, it's to promote well, all manner of things that are not biblical. And we need to be so careful. You know, the church in a sense is very much like a great house. And within that, there are vessels of gold and silver and wood and earth. Now really, strictly speaking, the gold and silver, if we take our First Corinthians 3 analogy, speaking of those things that are done for the glory of God, and the wood and earth, things of this earth. You know, so much of what is done within the church is purely for this earth, this world. You know, some are to honour, some to dishonour. And we're encouraged that we are to purge ourselves. We're to be discerning enough to recognise the difference. That each of us is accountable to God. This really, as I say, personally struck me. And I realised that God was saying that I couldn't rely on other people's faith. I couldn't rely on other people's understanding of Scripture. I had to work out my own salvation with fear and trembling, as we're encouraged to do. And I really felt the Lord just call me and say that I need to purge myself, get away from those things that are, are meaningless, that are just babble. And there was that promise that if you do those, if you come away from those things, you should be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, set apart, and meet for the master's use, prepared unto every good work. Isn't that what each of us want? We don't want to be tied in with things that are going to hold us back. And it's so hard, and I'm sure that each of us have got friends that are in other denominations that are not being fed the word of God. And so many times that question is asked, what should they do? Should they stay there? Well, I would argue on the basis of this verse and what the Lord personally spoke to me regarding was that you can stay as long as you want, but you won't change it. You may be able to influence one or two individuals, but you will not change the system. And ultimately, time is running out. We need strong Christians that are prepared to put upon the armor of God, to be like a soldier, to be like an athlete ready to run the race, to be like a farmer ready to labor hard and sow that seed so that we can reap. Because before long, the Lord will be returning for the church. And those that miss that opportunity, well, there's a really scary warning in Thessalonians that many will be given over to a lie. It was a lie that will be so deceptive, so powerful, 
the people who think they can escape it are very likely to be deceived. And we need to be preaching the gospel. We need to be sharing the truth of God's word with as many as have ears to hear. And many who are in established churches need to hear the truth of the gospel. They need to realize that so much of what goes on is purely just a social club. Now any church that stands on the word of God, that preaches and teaches the word of God, we need to pray for. But those that are not doing that, I encourage you gently and in love, speak the truth in love. Gently warn people, let them know that they're missing out on so much of the blessings that God has for them. And this verse again is an encouragement to purge yourself from those things. Let's leave it there this morning, we'll pick it up from there. Next week, let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we thank you for this lesson, this admonition really from Paul to Timothy to stand strong in that grace. Lord, to realize the hardship that we face, to recognize the difficulties and the challenges, but to meet them head on, knowing that your grace is sufficient for us. Lord, that there is no challenge that we will encounter that you will not give us the grace to deal with and to cope with. There is no battle that we will enter into as your soldier, that you as our commanding officer will not give us the power and the strength to overcome. There is no race that we could be running in this life, that you will not equip us with the energy and everything that we need to win. There is no field, Lord, that is so hard that it can't be plowed by labor, and you will give us the strength to labor. And Father, help us also to recognize that there is so much deception that has crept into the church. There is so much that is unhelpful. And Lord, give us the boldness and the compassion and the love to reach out to those that need to hear the truth and let them know that they can come to places where they can hear the gospel proclaimed, where they can grow in knowledge and grace, where they can be purged from those things and that they can be vessels fit for the master's use. Oh Lord, we pray you would add exceedingly abundantly to this congregation and to those, Lord, that do stand upon your word. We pray, Lord, you would add such that should be saved. Lord, fit for your use in these days that remain, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.